As fathers and mothers, or if you have a father or mother, you can likely relate to this. We could potentially sum up our role very simply as teaching and helping. Teaching and helping. Now I realize how very simplified that is, but it's, it's still potentially helpful. That our, our role is to both teach our children and to help our children. And I bring that up because we're, we're jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And the Gospel of Matthew is laid out in such a way that the first four chapters are showing us Jesus' identity as the true and faithful Israelite, or representing all of the nation of Israel. That's what he's doing in the first four chapters of, of Matthew's Gospel. And then what he goes on to do in chapters 5 through 7 is he, is he goes up onto the mountain and he gives us his law. He teaches us. He teaches us what it is to be his disciples. He teaches us what it is to be radically obedient and allegiant to him. And that's where we finished when we finished our series uh, sometime in June, I think. We finished at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we're picking back up where we left off. And that's in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we enter into a, a, a section where we see Jesus' help. Jesus helping his people. So teaching and helping. As one commentator called it, it's the doctrine of God's help. If in Matthew 5 through 7, we see how much Jesus demands from us in our discipleship and commitment to him, our total devotion, our total dedication, our total allegiance, we now see how much Jesus himself gives himself to us in our need. One commentator put it this way, first we see the infinite demand he has on us, and then we see the infinite help that he sheds upon us. And today we'll see that Jesus starts his helping ministry by helping the least people expected. And it's almost like a concentric circle coming inward as we see As we read through Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 to 17, we see that he first helps a leper, and then he'll help a centurion, and then he'll help a Jewish woman. And we can see those as concentric circles because we can see those people as, as the farthest possible away from God and coming inward to the centurion and to the woman. So let's read our text this morning. And then we'll unpack it. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the guilt, excuse me, the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. This is God's word for us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this text this morning, your precious and most holy word that you've given to us. We pray that we would be edified as we've now heard the word read. We pray that we would be built up as it's explained and applied and taught to us. We pray that the Lord Jesus would be magnified. We pray that the work of the Holy Spirit would come upon this church in a mighty and powerful way. We pray that the healing power of the Lord Jesus would be made manifest among us still today. Help our hearts to be enamored with his beauty and glory, which is your job, Spirit. Help me as I preach in Jesus' name, amen. So as you're taking notes, the title of the sermon today is The Miracles of Jesus. The Miracles of Jesus. And the three points, as you're writing them down, young people, are verify something, point to something, model something. Verify, point, and model. Point one, verify. Look down at verse 17 with me. It said that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus performs miracles is to verify, is to prove who he is. Another place, it says in John chapter 2 at the end of that that marriage supper at at Cana when he, he turned the water into wine, it said that... This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It says that in many places that when Jesus performs a miracle, it it engenders faith in people. So one of the reasons that Jesus performs miracles is to verify who he is, is to prove who he is, is to prove that he is the true son of God. And remember... That's part of the purpose of Matthew's gospel is to show us that he's the true son of Abraham. He's the true son of David. He's the true son of God. He's the true son of Abraham by bringing blessing to the whole world. That was the promise given to Abraham that through the seed of Abraham, one would come who would bring blessing to the whole world. He's the true son of David who has the authority of a king, but not just authority over Israel, but over every person, every tribe, and authority over everything that he's made. Because, of course, to sum it up, he is the son of God. And the centurion completely recognizes the authority of Jesus. 
The centurion says, in verse 7 and, uh, through 9, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Isn't it striking, just as an aside here, that Jesus' first move when he hears that the centurion's servant is sick, he just goes. Verse 6. Verse 7. I will come and heal him. His first impulse is just go at the request. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. That's not necessary. He says, I too am under an authority with soldiers under me. And if I say go, he goes to another come and he comes and another do this. And he does it. You realize what the centurion is saying here. He's, he's saying, I have people under my charge. And I get what it is to rule within a specific sphere. I say to do it and they do it. But then he turns to Jesus and he makes this audacious, lofty, infinitely large claim and he says, you don't even need to come to my house because I know that you have authority over the created world. You don't have to come to my house. I know who you are. I know that you have authority over the things that you've made. You can just say it in an instant and it's done. It's quite a claim. And Jesus marvels at this kind of faith that this man has. It tells us in verse 10. He marvels at the faith. And says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And a few verses down in the passage, it tells us that he helped the man's servant. That it was done in an instant. That it was done in a moment. Because part of the reason for miracles is that they verify, they prove that Jesus actually does have this kind of authority that the centurion claims that he does. Now, I suppose that we must be honest for a moment and say that what we see in this passage, namely that miracles prove that Jesus is the Son of God, is the very reason that some people don't believe. Many skeptics would suggest that the teachings of Jesus are are, are wonderful moral examples to us, but the miracles... It's the supernatural that is the hindrance to true belief because they would say, as we all know, miracles don't happen. The classic, but we know. But we know, of course, the argument goes, miracles don't happen. Let me just suggest a few things to us regarding this notion. First, the perspective to suggest that miracles don't happen is in fact a very ethnocentric viewpoint. The perspective that the supernatural doesn't exist and that miracles don't happen is a very ethnocentric viewpoint, which runs hard into the face of the liberal, of the liberal mindset. The liberal mindset doesn't want to find itself to be ethnocentric. And it is ethnocentric because almost every other culture outside of the Western world believes in the supernatural. And therefore, it's a bit arrogant for us in the West to sort of pat them on the head and say, that's very nice, but we know. But second, the notion and the idea that miracles cannot happen is itself a faith position. It's a belief. It's a belief. Like we live in a, a world that prizes science 
as the supreme arbiter of truth. We, we, we think that the notion of scientifically proven is the ultimate guardian of what is true. But we know that science can't even measure the most significant and important things about us. Science can't measure the love that you have for your children. It can, it can measure the things that you do, but it, it, can't, it can't measure the things that you feel. It can't measure some of the most significant and important things to us. It can't measure the feeling of courage. It can't measure the feeling of pain, of sorrow, of loss. It can measure the things around us that cause those things to happen, but it can't explain the innermost part of what it is to be a human. The things that we feel and experience every single day of our lives, the things that we prize the very most, it can't explain it. And this whole notion of scientifically proven has drifted itself into the church as well. We accept diagnoses as, as, as gospel truth from people. Because it's scientific, because it comes from somebody that has an MD. When so many of our issues are matters of the soul, are matters of the heart. Not to dispel, of course, of, of the, the, the wonderful advances of the medical community and the fact that we live in the 21st century. I praise God for that. But as Christians, there's a strong tendency for us to too quickly and easily rely on something that's scientific. When the Bible talks a lot about our problems as being from places of unforgiveness, of a lack of faith. But back to the point I was making. I'm going to give an illustration about something that I confess I know nothing about, okay? So maybe close your ears for the next 60 seconds, but, but I read about it two days ago. It's called chaos theory. Chaos theory deals with quantum mechanics, and you know how how versed I am in quantum mechanics. But chaos theory suggests to us that the laws of nature are far more fluid than we claim they are. Which would suggest that if the laws of nature are far more fluid than we realize, then miracles could therefore happen. So even at the the base of the scientific community, when investigating things at the the atomic and and subatomic level, physicists would suggest things aren't as put together as we think they are, as much as we claim them to be. So what's my point in all this? My point is that at the end of the day, to say that miracles cannot happen is itself a leap of faith. How do you know they can't happen? (laughs) You don't, you can't. So to a skeptic, let me just suggest one thing. Let me just suggest to us that a position of openness towards Jesus is the most intellectually honest position. To just encourage you to have the openness of a first century Roman military officer. Think for a moment who this centurion was. He's a Roman officer. He's probably a middle grade officer. He's a, a major. Maybe he's a lieutenant colonel. He's somewhere in there. He is, he's, he's grown up in a pagan society. But something has caused this man to come to Jesus with the kind of faith that Jesus would suggest that he hasn't even found in Israel. 
He's seen something in Jesus. He's seen something by looking at him, by watching what he does, by seeing his compassion, seeing how he interacts with people, and he says, this guy's the son of God. There's something about him. To quote Dick Lucas, who's a a preacher in uh, the United Kingdom, who was, he's, he's with the Lord now. He was arguing once with a skeptic, and he said, the skeptic says, I just want an airtight argument for the existence of God. And Dick Lucas's response was, what if God didn't give us an airtight argument, but what if instead he gave us an airtight person? He gave us the man, Jesus Christ, and whom is the answer to every question. So that's point one, verify or prove something. It proves who he is. Point two is it points us to something. The miracles of Jesus point us to something. They point us to a few things. First, let me, let me start here. They point us to the inclusive, compassionate nature of the gospel. When Jesus leaves the Sermon on the Mount and he goes out into the world to show his power, to show his love, to show his grace, to show his compassion, where does he go first? Does he go to the temple courts? Does he go to the religious elite? Does he go to the the center of of religious power? Does he go to the center of political power? No. He goes to the most marginalized in all of society. He goes to the leper. Leviticus tells us that lepers were truly the outcast ones in society, they couldn't come near the temple. They couldn't come near people. But Jesus has mercy on this one first. It's the first place he goes. To show his compassion, to show his love, to show his grace, to show his power. He goes to the least expected first. In fact, this whole chapter is about Jesus going to outsiders. He doesn't go to the inner circle. He doesn't go to the religious elite. He doesn't go to the political elite. He goes to outsiders. Next, he'll go and he'll help this centurion's servant. This Roman centurion's servant. And then he'll go to Peter's mother-in-law, a Jewish woman. All three of these people that are mentioned here that Jesus goes to would have some level of restriction in their uh, public worship in regards to the temple. One would not even be allowed to come near. One could come as, as, as close as the Gentile court, and the other was a woman who could come a little closer. And that's where Jesus goes first. Jesus has compassion and mercy towards the least and towards the, more, towards the most marginalized in all of society. That's one thing that it points us to. And we should suggest, too, that Jesus' comment in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. As that he's come to us. He's come to us who, I've said before, Portland, Oregon is probably the farthest place in the world from Jerusalem. 
to the ends of the earth. And the gospel has come to us as Gentile outsiders. But second, what else do they point us to? What do the miracles of Jesus point us to? There's something striking about the nature of Jesus' miracles, and that is that Jesus never just shows us a raw display of power. He never just shows us a raw display of power just for the heck of it, just to show who he is. Rather, he always uses his authority and his power to move into the suffering of the human race. He heals a leper, he heals a servant, he heals a mother. He calms a sea for some weary disciples. He feeds a crowd of hungry people. He heals a woman who, who was hemorrhaging for years. It is never just a raw display of power. It is always moving into the suffering of the human race and restoring order. B.B. Warfield put it like this. He said, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of his miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. If it is an exaggeration, it is a pardonable one. Because wherever our Lord went, he brought a blessing. We ordinarily greatly underestimate his beneficent activity as he went about. As Luke tells us, always doing good. So what does it point to? Well, one, it points us back. It points us back to the world that, the, that God created in the beginning. The world where there were no storms to be calmed because there was peace. The world where there was no need for healing because everything was set right. Everything God declared to be good and very good. The world where there was no need to create a miracle to feed somebody because all the trees of the garden save one were good for eating. It points us back to something. It points us back to the way things were, but it also points us forward. It points us forward to gaze upon and long for that new world that recreated heavens and earth. He tells us again to read verse 11. He says, I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's pointing us forward to that great day. He's pointing us forward to the day where he will consummate his kingdom, where God will reign on the earth with his people in a restored world. That day will be like this. Psalm 96 says it'll be like this. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. The trees are going to sing. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. It's pointing us forward to something. Now I'm going to do something now. And I'm going to do something that's potentially dangerous. It's dangerous because some people may feel left out and people may feel exposed. But I want to preach to you and I want to do it personally and pastorally so I'm willing to take the risk. I just want us to think about it. As I was praying 
this morning and meditating on this text, meditating on what that new world's going to look like and thinking about all of you and going through the membership directory and thinking about what is the new world, what does pointing forward mean for every individual in this congregation? It means for Merv that on the first day of that new world, he will be completely restored. That he will leap and he will jump and he will run like he never has before. It means for Matt and Amber, they'll never have to go to the funeral of a 39-year-old friend again. Because death is no more. It means that Paul will be totally healed. It means that Aletha and Jenny won't have joint pain anymore. It means that the chronic pain that Misty and Amy and Christy and Michelle and so many others feel will be gone. It'll be eradicated. It means for the lions that relationships will be restored. It means for Aaron Smith and Nathan Winslow that pain will be gone. It means for Jonathan Severn that diabetes will be gone. It means that disability will be gone. It means for Vanessa and Lindsay and Krista and Christy and Gay that miscarriages will be no more. It means for Melissa and Joel and Kimmy that they will see their children again. When you see the miracles of Jesus, you've never seen a more natural moment in your life. Because this is a broken world. Things are not the way they ought to be. In those moments when Jesus is performing a miracle, when he heals that leper, when he heals that centurion's servant, when he heals Peter's mother-in-law, he is setting the world to rights. And in that moment, you see the way that things should be in a moment no clearer than in that moment. Because that's what a miracle is. He's setting the world right to the way that it should be. He's giving us a glimpse of the way that the world was and of the way the world's going to be when we're restored to his rule and reign. It means that we must also pursue that same kind of diligence that our Lord Jesus did. C.S. Lewis said we either pursue it with cancer or we pursue it in a slum. Which means it's practical and it means that it's spiritual. Practically, it means that at times we just help people. We just, we just act with justice. Look what it says in verse 16. That's a striking verse because we're talking about the faith of the leper. We're talking about the faith of the centurion. And all of a sudden, Matthew just gives us verse 16 where he says, And that night they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits, and he healed everyone that was sick. He just displayed compassion. Doesn't say anything about these, the nature of these people's faith, whether they believed or not. It just was an act of compassion and grace. Which is why one of the reasons we're so excited about getting a facility is that we can use that facility and we can reclaim what the Lentz members have done for so many years for good, for compassion. Which is why one of the things that we're longing to do and looking forward to do in March is to host a Compassion Connect clinic. And to do so quarterly, that we can engage the needs around us. A a clinic that provides medical and dental care on a quarterly basis. Well, it models something for us as well. 
So that was point two. But it points us to something. It models something for us. And this, I'll be fairly brief because I want to do something else this morning. You ever notice that the, the nature and the way in which Jesus performs miracles as he makes himself to be vulnerable. He makes himself to be vulnerable. Here is the omnipotent God of the universe, the all-powerful one, the one who cannot be, um, nothing can be taken from him. And yet it says of him, when the woman came up in that place where she touched her garment, he said that he felt power go out from him. This is because Jesus always makes himself to be vulnerable in his meeting of our needs. It models something for us. It models the nature of mercy and justice and compassion. It costs us something. Jonathan Edwards said that to actually bear someone's burden it has to actually, to actually bear it yourself, if there is a burden of carrying 50 pounds, you actually have to feel some of it yourself. It's not actually bearing someone else's burden. If the imperative of the New Testament is to bear one another's burdens, you're not actually bearing the burden if you don't feel it in some way yourself. And this models Jesus' life and ministry all the way to the cross. We're on the cross, he becomes ultimately vulnerable. Vulnerable to the hands of wicked men. And the greatest thing that he ever accomplishes for us, he accomplishes for, for us by becoming weak and vulnerable to the point of death. When earth's maker lies in her belly, the creator of the cosmos, the one who sustains all things, is crucified for our sake. But it models something else for us. It models something here about the nature of coming to Jesus, the nature of healing. I just want to make a couple points for us about our own faith by application. I just want to point out two things about the nature of coming to Jesus and asking him for healing, for help, for mercy. And there are just two lessons that we can gain glean from the leper. The first one comes to us in in verse two. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. First thing is it doesn't demand help as a right. Doesn't demand help as a right. Lord Jesus owes us nothing. We were his enemies running far from him under the wrath of God. He owes us nothing. Everything that he gives us is from his gracious, kind, loving, merciful hand. That's the first disposition. But the second disposition is an assurance that God can heal. Is an assurance that God can heal. It's modest in appeal, but it's bold in God's ability. Now, I must teach you something here, or clarify something, if you already know this here, that's, that's, that's crucially important. When we think about the nature of faith and how that relates to our own healing, 
introduce two terms to you, and I'll define them. It's the difference between qualitative and quantitative. Qualitative faith versus quantitative faith. Qualitative faith means the substance of something, the quality of it, the quality of faith. Quantitative means the amount of it, the quantity of it. This is crucial to us when we talk about faith. Because there is a heresy from the pit of hell that says that people aren't healed because they don't believe enough. But there is something to the quality, the substance of one's faith. Jesus taught us as much. He said to them after they couldn't drive out the demon in Matthew 17, he said, because of your little faith, you couldn't do it. For I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So what does he mean then? How do you juxtapose because of your little faith to faith of a mustard seed? So one is, no, you can't do it because of this. They almost sound the same, but they're not. And I think the clue is what happens right before that. He calls them a faithless and twisted generation. So when he says, because of your little faith, he's saying it as, as, a, as we would say in as an English colloquialism, we would say, that person was of little help to me. We're not trying to describe, oh yeah, they helped me a little bit. We're saying they're useless to me. They were of little help to me. It says also that when Jesus was in Nazareth, Matthew chapter 13, he says, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So unbelief is a hindrance to the work of God. We can describe the work of God or the miracles of God like this. It's the convergence of our faith and Jesus' power. It's the convergence of our faith and Jesus' power. So, a qualitative faith. A qualitative faith is best described by that man in Mark chapter 9 who had the son that was possessed. And it said that the son would foam at the mouth and the demon would throw him into the fire and throw him into the water. And the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. That mustard seed of faith is that quality of faith. That mustard seed of faith will always be enough. Because that mustard seed of faith, though there's a weakness to it, I am, I believe, help my unbelief, I am weak, help my weakness, has a quality to it. It's not a quantity. The best illustration is if you were on the side of a mountain and, 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 and the cliff began to give way and there was a branch there and you reached out and you grabbed the branch, you wouldn't be saved by the, qual- uh, the quantity of your faith. Even if you just had an ounce of faith to reach out and grab it, you would be saved because of the object of your faith. Jesus said to us in John chapter 14, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than, he, than, than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So this means two things for us today. First thing, it means that we as a church need to pursue, as Paul tells us, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Jesus promised us that we would do greater things than he did. If he promised that he would send the helper to us. And then the apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 to earnestly desire it. Then that's what we're going to do. And as a church, the elders are leading the church in this direction. To er- learning what it is to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts and to, and to walk in the things of the spirit. And we'll be preaching a whole series after Easter on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 and trying to plunge the depths of the scriptures to understand what this means for us as a local church. But the second thing that it means for us today is that we're going to go into a time of ministry right now, which means that in a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to go back up. And there's going to be a, a prayer team up here this morning. I'm going to invite you to come up. I'm going to invite you to come up with that mustard seed of faith. And to ask God to do something. Ask God for a healing. Ask God to heal someone else. Remember, it's the centurion's faith that heals the servant. Come up and ask with that kind of faith that God would heal someone else in your life. Let's expect the Holy Spirit to meet us this morning. Let's expect to be surprised by his presence and power among us. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this text here. Thank you for the miracles of Jesus. Thank you that the raw power of our Lord Jesus Christ is always moving into life situations, to move into people. Father, we pray that our hearts would be enamored with Jesus. And Father, we pray that your spirit would come now and that you would minister to us. So we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.